0: Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship, for preparing uh, just a, a great set of things, and, and worship so that we can join in together and, and praise the Lord together, and thank Him for all good things. And this, last, well, yesterday was the 20th anniversary of 9-11, where our country was attacked, Uh, totally unknown, almost 3,000 died. I want to bow in prayer this morning for our nation, in memory memory of that, and then for what's going on even today in our nation. Father, we just bow before you, and we bring our nation before you. And Lord, it's such a horrible memory to think of 9-11 20 years ago, And how many innocent people died at the hands of terrorists. And Lord, all the planning that had to go into that, all the training that had to go into that act of evil shows you the wickedness of mankind. And so, Father, we pray for those families who are still suffering from that tragedy. We pray for our nation as we try to prevent that from happening again. And Lord, we we pray that our nation to you because we know that we have strayed from you in many ways over over the decades and centuries. And Father, we just pray that you would bring a spirit of revival into our nation. And Lord, even now, as we face these current trials as we have this division in our nation and we have uh, things that are being introduced that are so strange and that people disagree on so vehemently. Lord, we pray that the church that we could rise up and bring peace, bring sensibility, bring calmness, bring love and friendship back into this nation, the church. And Lord, we pray that you would direct us in the right way and that you would influence our leaders and the many, many leaders that we have in Washington, D.C. and across the country to take the wisest steps and the most honorable steps to you. And Lord, we do pray that we could come out of this... uh, more unified and as a healthier nation and a nation that brings you back into focus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, these last few weeks we've been talking about the Apostle Paul establishing brand new churches. And we were talking about how he went to the island of Crete and um, I'll just move this guy over here a little bit <clears throat> Crete is just southeast of Greece which you can't you know you don't see Greece it's it's above and then it's southwest of uh, Turkey the present-day Turkey and it's in the Mediterranean Sea, but they call it the Sea of Crete there right by the island. And the Apostle Paul, as he was going through, he, most of the churches that you read about, New Testament churches that were planted from the apostles, were up in that area of Turkey where the word sea is. And then Paul came down and went through the island of Crete and planted several churches. It doesn't say how many, but... Uh, he gave his whole life to traveling through certain parts of the world. You know, Paul talks about how God gave him a certain area of the earth to be his area. And that's what he did with the apostles and different evangelists. He gave them certain areas of the world to, to go into and to take the gospel message to. And in order to carry out his ministry from God, Paul never married... I mean, we have no record of his being married. Some people think maybe he was a widower, but we have no record of his being married. Never had a family. He would go into cities to take the gospel message and to to present God's freedom to people, and he would be chased out of those cities because people would follow him in who didn't like the gospel message, and they would stir up rabble-rousers, and after a while... They would just chase him out of the city. Sometimes it was painful. Sometimes he just had to run. He suffered numerous imprisonments in his ministry. He endured horrible beatings, sleepless nights, days of hunger, endless hardships. He lists some of those things in a couple of different passages in the New Testament. And just reading them through, you're thinking, whoa. I mean... This guy has had the the bad end of the stick all the way through. But you know, he continues on covering the territory God has appointed him to. And where he is able, he establishes churches. And not every place that he went and preached the gospel were there enough people to start a church. But in a lot of places he went, he was able to start churches. And he's covering that territory that God gave him. And you would think that when a church is started or established like the Apostle Paul did and the, the other apostles and other evangelists, you would think when a church gets started then at least in that instance you would think you could say mission accomplished. Plant the flag of victory. Raise the banner. Christ lives here. But you know... It's not that clear-cut. Because in so many instances, you'd have these people, I just call them low-life scoundrels, who they would see this young church, and they'd say, okay, that's where I'm going. And it's kind of like if you ever watch those videos of animals in the jungles going after each other, lions going after wildebeests or whatever, when they see one of those animals being born or they see one that is a newborn or you know young that's the one they often go after and so these false teachers they see this newly planted church and then they come to the church and they come as if they were believers in Christ yeah I'm with you I believe in Christ not only just Coming as fellow believers, but they often came in as studied teachers of the faith, authorities of the faith. And they would come in and they would start talking to these young converts, and mostly they were just like, oh, just scam, scammers, you know. And they would gain the confidence of the people with impressive speech or their hair-raising stories of the things that they had done, and I'm sure they weren't true at all and they would take their money. And then in some sense, they would make them their servants. In one place in Second Corinthians, Paul was chastising the Corinthians because they were accusing him, because of some false teachers, and he says, "You so gladly welcome in those who will smack you in the face." And here I have sacrificed for you, and you don't listen to me. And see, that is going on all around as Paul plants churches, and the people come in behind, and they say, here is a delectable piece of meat. Now, of course, we know that behind all this scenario, we have the church planters, we have the Christians, we have those who become Christians, We have those who come in as false teachers, as wolves in sheep's clothing. But we know behind all of that is also and maybe mainly the work of Satan, who was always out to subvert the work of God, who was always out as an enemy of God's people. But, you know, Paul says they're dressed in, they're like angels of light coming in. Th- they're phonies, and they're good talkers, and they know how to get people. And We see those kind of people today, don't we? So the Apostle Paul would continually warn these new churches to guard against these false teachers, not to just believe everything you hear right off the bat. You have to test people. So now we're returning to the New Testament letter of Paul to Titus, And we see in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1 when Paul mentions this, he says, he he tells them to be careful be on their guard for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. and Those would be the the Judea. This is one group who would come in. People who were Jews and they didn't like Christians saying that they had a Ticket to heaven, you know, without becoming a Jew. So they would come in and try to convince these people that they had to also take in the law, the Jewish law, or start obeying the Jewish law. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced. Because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. So Paul tells Titus now that he has to counter these false teachers. And he tells him now what he has to do to counter these false teachers. And you know, as we're thinking, what about these people who come in and they're just tricksters, they're just phonies, and they come in and they try to take your people away. And you might be thinking of, well, how do we handle them? He says they must be stopped. And we may be thinking tar and feathers. We may be thinking, you know, who knows what we could be thinking. But look what uh, Paul says to Titus chapter 2, verse 1. You, however must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Paul is saying, you counter this false teaching with the truth of God's word. And he's saying, that which has been passed down from the apostles. Because, of course, we don't have the New Testament yet. But the teachings have been passed down from the apostles who plant the churches and who spread the teaching. And so... Paul says, you must counter what they're saying with the truth that you have received that led you to Jesus Christ. But then, you know, we saw last uh, week or so that Paul does not then start diving into uh, heavy doctrine, heavy theology, teaching them, okay, when they say this, you say this. He actually begins to talk to them about how these new converts to Christianity should now live their lives as Christians. Different when they, than what they were living, they now must change their whole lifestyles. What kind of people should they become? Did you know that most, the most important way for us as followers of Jesus to fight us against false teachings is to live godly lives. That's the most important way. It's good to know the Bible, right? And it's good to know verses that go against certain false teachings. But the, most, the best way to fight against false teachings is for us to live godly lives as we follow Christ. Now, we've gone through these Christian characters, that, characteristics that Paul tells them they should have. And we're not going to go through them again specifically. But what I want to do this morning is focus on three that I believe stand out. As Paul tells them the things, the, the characteristics they should be adopting into their new Christian lives... There are three that I believe stand out for one reason or another that hold special importance. So, <clears throat> just in brief summary before we get to the three, remember he tells the older men and the older women to be examples of godly living. And he says it with different characteristics. He tells the younger women to make their families a priority. He tells the younger men to focus on something he's already mentioned Three times before he gets to the younger men, and that's the first character trait I want to look at this morning because it's basically given to each group older men, older women, younger men, younger women. And it's in chapter, it's in verse six of Titus 2. And he's finally gotten down to the fourth group, <clears throat> and he tells Titus, Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Now, we we touched on this as we went through it before, but I think since Paul repeats it for each group, he doesn't repeat each characteristic for each group, but he repeats this one for each group. Uh, I think it could use a little further looking into. And so you think, self-control what is all that about self-control seems to be pretty obvious controlling yourself but you know in our day self-control isn't nearly as highly valued as it was in other times in past ages you know human nature was something that the scholars and the teachers would say needed to have restraints. We needed to have restraints on our most basic instincts because they recognize the dangers of people just being unrestrained or being self-indulgent. But you know, today, more people don't believe in God or they're trying to convince themselves they don't believe in God. I think many more do than say they do or don't. And then so many dismiss him and what they do, what we do is if we get rid of God, guess who takes his place? We do, don't we? We answer to ourselves. And when we start lifting humanity up, which is what has been happening across the you know, Western world, we start lifting humanity up. And it turns out that we start thinking everything we do is good because it's just part of who we are as humans. And we are exalted people. And so we get rid of these commands from God and this worshiping this this being that is above all else. And we put ourselves kind of up into that place. And then everything that we do becomes good and holy. Or everything we do becomes highly valued. Every instinct becomes highly valued. And we can decide everything for ourselves. Because we're not answering to God. And if we want to be a a woman, we just become a woman. If we want to be a man, we just become a man. And this, even today, I heard a little talk, well, even these days, not today, but I heard a little talk <clears throat> with this expert psychologist lady. She said that it's time for us to be more sympathetic to child molesters because that's, that's who they are. And she's not saying we, we should encourage them or even not try to deal with them, but she's just saying you gotta realize this is part of humanity and see that's that's where it's all going but you know in the past self-control was seen as one of the chief virtues of humanity even among non-christians Plato, Aristotle, the Stoics, the Essenes very respected thinkers they all thought of self-control as a highly valued chief virtue the lack of self-control was seen as a very great character weakness by these thinkers in writing self-control would be described as another word for it would be moderation you know you not you're not going wild off the end of the the stick another word they use was sensibleness Self-restraint, sober-minded. They would use that as, as a description of self-control. Self-control was a way of, uh, seen as a way of thinking rightly or sensibly. You know, when Jesus, <clears throat> they got in the boat, they went over to the Gerasenes, this one region. And there was that demon that lived among the tombs, the, or the demoniac who was uh, indwelt by a legion of demons. He lived among the tombs, and he would scream and cry and break his chains. They They tried to control him. They couldn't control him. He was totally out of control. And then when Jesus healed him, and the demons, he let them go into the pigs, and the pigs ran off the cliff. The townspeople came out, and they saw this man sitting there, and it says... He was dressed and in his right mind, which is the same word for self-control. And so it's somebody who can think straight, somebody who is sober-minded, who puts things in its right order. It's also equated with someone using sober judgment. Like when Paul tells the Roman Christians, don't think more highly of yourself yourself than you ought to. But use sober judgment, and that's self-control. Same word. The idea of self-control is that you are thinking and acting sensibly, soberly, with proper judgment. You see things as they really are, and you know your place, and you don't lift yourself up higher than you should be. And if we get rid of God, there's no self-control. There's no sober thinking, is there? especially if we put ourselves up in his place. And we know in our own day that a lack of self-control can lead to all kinds of bad results. A lack of self-control can lead to alcoholism and drug addiction, porn addiction, gaming addiction, sexual addiction, promiscuity, violence, rioting, mass shootings. You know, loss of a job, broken marriages. At times you lose your right to visit your own children. And a lot of times it comes down to a lack of self-control. But you know, even before all those bad things happen, a lack of self-control, before it gets into all those really horrible uh, extremes, a lack of self-control can stop us from attaining our goals it can stop us from having a good marriage, from really enjoying our family, from having good friends. And if we can exercise self-control, it can help us with our relationships and then even opening the door to sharing the gospel. The scriptures encourage self-control and sober thinking. Now, the next character quality I want to talk about that was in this passage is submission. It's mentioned a few times in the passage, but submission isn't valued very much in our society either, is it? It's like you're not thinking highly enough of yourself. Now, when we went through this before, I spoke for a few minutes because the verse taught said younger women should subject themselves to their husbands. and So I spoke for just a few minutes on that. But today I want to speak on submission, both in marriage and in general. <clears throat> and I remember when I was a pretty young Christian, maybe one or two years into my Christian life. And I had just moved into a whole new world a whole new set of, you know, uh, standards and, and ways to look at things. And Laura and I, at some point, at that point early in my Christian life, we met and we started dating and we were moving on towards marriage. And the things that I kept hearing, we kept hearing from the teachers and the preachers and the books and all that, we kept hearing about how, Men need to take the lead. Men need to, you know, be the leader in their marriages. Men need to make sure that that the woman isn't the leader, but the man is the leader. And it was just kind of like pressed down all the time. And being a fairly new Christian, not really into Christian principles so much, I felt somewhat pressured by that because everything I was doing was kind of new and now I'm supposed to come in and just control this woman and tell her what it's going to be and not take any guff or anything like that. But we were hearing these messages and I really didn't know what to do with them so much, you know. <clears throat> and so Laura and I would talk about it because we were both we wanted to do the right thing. And uh, we talked about situations, okay, if this happens, maybe we should do this and I should do this and you should do this and, and if I, that way I can be the good boss man and all that kind of stuff. And it just kind of seemed burdensome to me because it seemed just to add a whole other layer of burden to an already vastly changing landscape that we were entering into as, as young marrieds. But, you know, as we began our marriage, uh, it never really even became an issue. I never felt like I needed to call her down to say, Hey, I'm the one that's supposed to do the authority thing here. And she never felt like she had to ask my permission on everything since, you know, she wasn't worried about me supposed to be the authority. And we did, you know, whenever we did decision-making and talking about changes and <clears throat> new things, that we, we, just, we were just talking it over like two people. <laughs> so we almost became just two people to each other. And really, I believe, because we were both committed to the Lord, like young believers, and we were excited about serving the Lord, and so we really never even had to worry About, you know, rebellious wives and husbands that wouldn't lead and all that kind of stuff. And that seemed to answer so many questions. Because in Christ, you know, we were just trying to be giving and helping and caring and stuff like that. Trying to change over into that sort of thinking. And it's not that we never had to work anything out. We did. But it wasn't really headship, submission-type things. It was learning how to be married, learning how to work through issues now that we're a married couple. I did have to tell him not to talk so gruff to me. No, wait, I think that was the other way around. Yeah, we had to do things like that, you know. Uh, how to be kinder, gentler, things like that for not ever being married. But it wasn't so much headship submission. <clears throat> I think when there are problems like that in a marriage, it's usually not headship submission. It's usually one or both just not you know, displaying the love and character of Christ. And I think if we get down into who we are in Christ and the character of Christ, that solves a lot of those problems. I believe most of you will recognize that when marriage troubles arise, it is almost always due to Christian character, a flaw in somebody's Christian character. Now, the Bible does tell wives to submit to their husbands. I mean, it clearly says that. And here's how I see that, and I I mentioned it a little bit before, but God created human beings as male and female in His image. And He did create men to take a leading role, and men are wired differently than women. And so that leading role largely is to protect and to provide and to, you know, be there to support and help it's one of responsibility the wife is told to submit to her husband but the husband is told to to love his wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her back in those days when we were seeing this you know tell the wives to submit to their husbands uh, it was a big big issue And the Bible writers tell wives to submit in several places. And if they refuse, and a lot of the reason was because that was the culture in that time. And if the wife wouldn't listen to her husband, then they would have no credibility in the community to spread the word of God. And then also, in those times, and even now, today in some cultures wives are seen as those who just stay home basically and are, are with the children and not out in public a lot because of society's standards and wives who didn't listen to their husbands and were away from home a lot were seen as women of questionable character just if they were out all the time Of course we don't deal with a lot of that do we I mean We don't see a wife out doing the shopping and that sort of thing, visiting friends. We don't see that as something bad. Yet, it is good for a wife to respect her husband, right? It is good for a wife to help her husband become a godly leader. It is good for her to support him and help him learn to be a leader. Uh, It is beneficial if a wife gets to stay at home with the children... It's good for a wife to look to her husband for leadership. All of those things are good things. And of course, husbands need to learn to love and protect their wives. And we want to as Christian spouses to love and care for each other. But we also factor in this element of living in different times and different places. And, you know, all of this and different times where Money is tighter than other times. And then the other thing, we don't want women to be bossy, do we? And we don't want men to be bossy. (laughs) And we don't want men to be mousy. I guess women can be mousy if they want. But But we want men to step forward and do the right thing, don't we? We want men to be brave and take the first stand and, and stand up. To something that's wrong. That's what we want, don't we? It doesn't have to be a macho man thing. It's just being responsible. It's just following the Lord. We would do what the Lord Jesus did. And then for a last minute or two. You know, the Bible mentions in verses 9 and 10. 9 and 10 Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make, their te- they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now, a lot of people will ask, why does God approve of slavery And why is Paul going along with that, telling these slaves to serve their masters? Slavery is wrong. It's evil. Well, you know, if you look throughout the Bible, so much of human history is filled with things that God did not plan the earth to have or societies to have when He created the world. We human beings sinned in the perfect environment of the garden, and we brought sin into the world that has infiltrated everything. Relationships and, and everything that we have to deal with. Even the earth itself and the atmosphere. Sin has brought in all kinds of hurts and destruction and wars and dishonesty. Floods, earthquakes, divorces, mass killings, false religions. Even child sacrifices has been done throughout the time. We are engaged in child sacrifices in our nation. We're making it legal. Slavery is one of those horrible results of mankind turning away from God. But we see that throughout history, when there is this this evil going on, whatever it is, slavery or any of those other things, we see that God doesn't really just move in and cleanse it out, does he? And people will look at that and they'll say, how could there be a God if that is happening? How could there be a God if these, people, these evil people are allowed to do what they want to do? But that's not God's way of doing things, is it? I mean, things got so bad, you know, a long time ago, that God flooded the earth and started over because sin had gotten so bad. But he said he wasn't going to do that again. Slavery is one of those horrible results of mankind turning away from God. But what God does is He works with people in this sin-wrecked world. But in this sin-wrecked world, He promises us that everyone who turns to Him and turns to His Son becomes one with His Son, one day will inherit a glorious future eternal kingdom and that's it that's the answer is that we have to live through this stuff but we have that shining glorified hope in front of us that will last for eternity so he doesn't tell christian slaves well since you've accepted my son you're free to, just to, to leave your master. He tells them to be obedient and serve their masters and be a good example of a Christian slave. But he also tells them, "And you, have, you will reign as kings for eternity. So it doesn't mean that God approves of slavery, but it is one of the many horrible things that we endure on this earth. As we are looking to Christ's return. And on this point. I would just like to. Bring it to a close with this. You know turning to Jesus Christ. And following him. And devoting our lives to serving him. And loving him. Is the most wonderful thing that we can do. But we also know. That when we do that, and if we do it, even with all of our might, we know that our problems, all of our problems won't just disappear. And the day we come to Jesus and ask Him for forgiveness, and He he adopts us as His child, we're still living on this sin-wrecked earth. And as His children, we will go through suffering. He promises that in the New Testament in several places that we will go through suffering. And so many Christians today are turning away from Christ because of suffering. And I'm not talking about the ones being persecuted and put in jail. They're staying strong with Christ. I'm talking about ones that have these troubles, marriage troubles, or they see something they don't like happening. And they don't like the way God is running his earth. I wish they would have read their Bibles before they turned away from Christ. Paul tells these Christian slaves to submit to their masters. Show them respect. Show them what happens when somebody turns to Christ. Don't talk back to them. Become trusted. Now, why should children of God be faithful slaves to sinful slave owners because that's how God is using them in this life and that's how God uses us in this life God has it all under control he has not lost track of any matter he has a perfect plan and it is all being carried out In this age. Even the attacks from Satan are fitting into his plan. He doesn't originate them. Satan does. They're evil. But God will take that evil and use it for our good. And the result will be all of his children inheriting the new earth forever. The key ingredient is faith. Faith. We don't have every answer, but we but we do have the answer. Keep your faith in God's goodness, wisdom, and promise. We have to hang in there. We will be rewarded for our eternity, and our eternal glory will be will completely outweigh any suffering we go through on this earth. So, self control submission to proper authority and being slaves of Jesus Christ. That's part of our pathway to eternal glory. May we see things through the light of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it tells us so many things that we need to know and that We would be very lost without them. And Lord, you don't hide anything either. You just put it all out there. And it's not a faith that you can invite people to and tell them this is the end of your problems. And so, Lord, give us strength and help us to reach others with the truth and help us use godly Christian character. To make the church attractive to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.